Today we are again in 2 Samuel. Today we are in chapter 18 and our reading will take us through the beginning of chapter 19. We don't have uh, nearly as far to go with the life of David as we did when we started. But today and the text today is a uh, sort of turning point in many ways in the book of 2 Samuel. So if you would follow, I think the scripture's printed for you. Uh, uh, we will begin reading chapter 18, verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, what? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. At least Joab was consistent, wasn't he? But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai for my sake, Protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and stuck him and killed him. 
Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no sons to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, as the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. He had a longer distance to go, by the way, if I don't remember this but it was a much easier uh, trail. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted his eyes, he looked and he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate, See another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who had raised their hand against my Lord, the king. And the king says, said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I didn't know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord, the king. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all those who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. 
And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you for you have made it clear today that the uh, commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Bold. Then the king arose, took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that in this lengthy chapter we would be able to see the truth that you want to impress upon us today. And we pray that uh, as you speak to us, we would hear it and it would be etched upon our hearts and our souls and that we may be changed by it evermore into the increasing glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. What a story, huh? And when you look at this passage from a literary standpoint, there are a number of things that I just want to quickly call your attention to. I mean, the content of the narrative is pretty straightforward. You see that in the outline. But when you consider the way that the writer of 2 Samuel tells this story, he does so in a very fascinating way. First, we can detect detect the focus of the attention by the writer because he all but ignores the battle uh, as a whole. In verses 6 through 8, he gives us a brief synopsis of the battle itself. Pretty short. He tells us about losers and casualties and circumstances and then takes 10 verses to turn his lens on Absalom's disastrous encounter with David's truth. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men and this episode occupies a great deal of narrative time here. He does not give us a comprehensive detailed account of the battle. Rather he wants to tell you just about how Absalom met his end. And if space is a criterion for interest, then we want to highlight David's anxiety for the news of Absalom and his reaction to such news. There are three major characters in this narrative. Absalom, he's central. He's the core. Josh, uh, excuse me, Joab. Joab is dominant. He seems to be the one in most control from a human point of view. And then David almost entirely passive in this whole account. And so, in one sense, when you read 2 Samuel, Absalom pretty well moves into the story beginning at chapters 13 and 14, and he gets a lot of time, airtime, and attention in this particular narrative. But what I found more remarkable than this 
is the irony that's in the passage. And let me just run through that quickly for you. Uh, there are a lot of twists of irony in this story. The whole episode, in one sense, seems to be twisted. Um, looking at our story in isolation, everything happens that shouldn't happen. David makes a request, which, however unrealistic, is crassly ignored. He wanted Absalom's life treated gently and spared. Israel's gorgeous rave poster boy uh, gets trapped in the most undignified dilemma. Now, the text says it caught, he caught his head, yet you could deduce from that he was caught by his hair. More on that later. Absalom intended to commemorate his fame by building a monument himself that my wife posted on the Internet last week. It's still there. <laughs> and it's eclipsed by the one that perpetuates his infamy. Joab's intent for the Cushite to reach David first is frustrated when Ahimaaz gets there first. And news of the victory brings grief and mourning, not celebration. And the conquering troops come sleeking back home like they lost and were ashamed. And like they had run away in retreat. Everything misses its mark. Intentions are not matched with right results, and a sad triumph occurs indeed. And so as we look at this text, it's carefully written to communicate a number of things which we're going to get into now. And the first one is the battle uh, plans. It's ironic. And this, is, this got to me this week because when I read how Israel prepared for the war, they did exactly what Ahithophel wanted Absalom to do. In other words, they knew of Ahithophel's plans for the battle because Hushai had already told and sent word to David that they were going to follow his plan, not Ahithophel's. And so David and Joab... All know Ahithophel is a wise man. He's a sage. And so they incorporated his plan in the attack against Absalom. There we have our sovereign God at work. And they execute the plan to perfection. Uh, his strategy was followed. It was carried out by David's armies rather than Absalom. And uh, what they did initially was cause panic um, and, and, uh, Ahithophel wanted to ca uh, cause panic in David's army, but Ahithophel's army was, or Absalom's army, excuse me, i got so many names going on here. Absalom's army was the one that fled. Ahithophel wanted to isolate David alone, and yet it was Absalom who gets isolated alone by hanging in the tree. So it's almost everything that Absalom wanted and planned backfired on him. It's like uh, what goes around comes around. It's like reaping what you sow. And now his judgment has come upon himself. And uh, Absalom's name, by the way, means father of peace. But peace was only brought through the death of Absalom. Now, the irony is there for all to see. And so they had gathered the troops. The war happened. Uh, I could go into a little more detail about how the, uh, he split the troops up into three groups and what their strategy was, but it worked to perfection. They did exactly what they wanted to. They carried it out with uh, great zeal. 
But David, as you remember, had given explicit public instructions to deal gently with Absalom. So a servant finds him, runs to Joab, and said, we see Absalom hanging from a tree. And Joab immediately says, what? Did you kill him? And the servant said, no, you were there when I was there. We all heard it. The king said it. Deal gently with my son. And so Joab, <laughs> Joab's a warrior. He didn't put up with much. He didn't put up with anything. He knew in a battle Absalom needed to die. And so he takes javelins. That's what the text calls it. But they were sticks. And they were used uh, for steering and taking care of uh, sheep. But they were also used as rods of discipline in families. And he takes these three javelins, and he doesn't penetrate Absalom's heart. He just beats his chest with them three times. All three of them beats him while he's hanging. And then he turns around to his servants, and they stab him to death. And they take him down. And in spite of Absalom's hope and dream that he would be remembered by the monument that was built for him, and that's odd for a king to do that, especially that early in his life. But he said he had no children, and we don't know whether he really had children later, then he built a monument or what, but Absalom was all about Absalom. He was all about exalting himself. He was so into himself, it is unbelievable. He was a vain, pretentious, precocious man. And so, thinking he was in control the whole time, planning his own monument ahead of time to be sure that he would get the glory and honor that he longed for, Joab had other ideas. And so Joab, of course, administered to Absalom uh, through his servants the death that was done. And so... Uh, Notice also, as you read in the text, that the forest killed more people than the soldiers did. That the Israel army, that is Absalom's army, suffered the loss of 20,000 men. Obviously, from the last chapter, time had passed where David was able to amass a rather large force. But Absalom still had him outnumbered per men. And yet they drove them into the forest of Ephraim. And the forest of Ephraim are east of the Jordan River. So Absalom, get this, dies outside the city, outside the camp. He's east of the Jordan River where Ephraim is. And so in the forest, there were obviously lots of trees, rugged terrain, scrub brush everywhere. And literally what the text says is that the forest ate... Absalom's army. God supernaturally driving this army into the forest, the loss of life was incredible. And Absalom was also among those consumed by the forest. He was caught by his hair in the tree, that beautiful, glorious head of hair, his crown and his glory. He was like a glamour rock style. Do you remember the glamour rock movement? where all these guys had this big hair? Was this in the 80s? Right about that? Well, see, I was an old southern rocker. I thought they were, I won't tell you what I thought they were, but you could guess. <laughs> they they uh, had this big hair. To, they had it shagged and cut, and they all wore makeup, and they all wore these, 
very effeminate looking in every way. And I'm assuming that Absalom would have fit perfectly into that stage. I mean, he had a remarkable presence that was impressive to people. He was a handsome man. He drew a lot of attention. But now he's suspended between heaven and earth, hung up in an oak tree in the limbs by his hair, and he dies. Oh, the fall is terrible. And so he hangs in a tree. The royal mule runs out from under him. He lost control of the reins of his kingdom. And as Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23 says, one hung on a tree is the curse of God. In other words, the king's prince son hung on a tree, cursed. Does that remind you of anyone? Because didn't the Lord Jesus hang upon the cross? Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, and Peter called the cross what? The tree. He hung upon the tree and received the judgment of God. So even Absalom has a moment as a type of the cross pointing us to the death of the king prince. And uh, uh, David's kingdom was resurrected by the death of his son. One of David's men saw him hanging, as I told you, but did nothing. Joab took care of it. And uh, everybody knew that when, uh, when they got back after the uh, army, of course, Joab sends the messengers. Everybody knew that David was obsessed with the safety of Absalom. Um, let me just share this quickly because time is running by. But David, he's a father. And that's his son. And he's a dear son to his father. Maybe David had secretly invested all his hopes for the kingdom coming to his son. When David looked at Absalom, what he saw was the, the fulfillment of the promise of Nathan that a Davidite would occupy the throne of the kingdom forever. And so David looked at him, and of course, he begs for his son. David was always tender toward his enemies. And in many respects, he does model, at least in his life, a concern for his enemies. He never did anything to Saul. He didn't kill Saul. He could have killed Saul. He had opportunity after opportunity. Saul treated him like dirt, worse than dirt. And Absalom had too. Absalom had totally been a traitor, totally broken his father's heart, totally wounded him, took his kingdom away, went into his concubines, had done everything a good son would never do to his father. But David wanted him spared. Now, as a father, I understand how any father would never want their children to be killed. I get that. But David's obsession here to me says more than just uh, a, a normal fatherly grief and heartbreak. David's obsession here speaks of idolatry. David had turned Absalom into an idol and his heart went more toward Absalom than it did Yahweh. And David could not even bring himself to understand how awful this was. So I don't 
condemn or criticize David for grieving over his son, but I also think there's one other thing that inflamed the grief in David's soul more than anything else, was he understood that when Nathan the prophet confronted him about his sin, he told him what? The sword will never depart from your house. And I'm sure the minute he heard Absalom was dead, that prophecy wounded his heart. You see, we, we can have our sins forgiven. Consequences notwithstanding. Recently, someone uh, challenged me on whether or not uh, they should uh, be able to resume a relationship that they had destroyed by their own actions, and they were complaining that the other person had not truly forgiven them. I said, oh, no, I know about the situation. I know the person. They have forgiven you, but forgiveness does not always mean the relationship resumes. And while... Absalom had done this horrible thing. David's grief is overwhelming. It swallows him up. And one of the signs that you have made someone or something or more than likely even a family member an idol is, have you ever heard people who just can't go on, they can't face life, can't deal with the loss of a child? I know it's devastating. I know it's heartbreaking. But that child is not everything. Jesus is everything. And I've seen people turn their backs on the Lord and walk away from the Lord because he took away from them what was most precious, which really was their salvation. Jesus wasn't. That person was. You may think I'm being harsh, and I hope I'm not. My name is not Joab. <laughs> Joab, Joab is a man's man. You got to like Joab in some respects. And what I like most about Joab was he was a soldier. He understood. Joab had a passion for the kingdom, and he wanted to protect the king, protect the kingdom, although he was the one that originally brought Absalom in. But Joab was a passionate man, and when we see the runners return, of course, David is obsessed with what? How is my son Absalom? He asked it to each one of them. Finally, the Cushite, why would the, why would the Cushite deliver that news? Because he's expendable. Ahimaaz <laughs> uh, uh, ah, was not expendable. He was a very important person. And so jo <laughs> uh, Joab let him go, thinking the Cushite would beat him, but he didn't. But when the Cushite relies, relays the news, David completely disintegrates and the grief is far beyond what anybody would call normal or healthy grief have you you've heard of people who who can't seem to cope with the grief and believe me grief is is uh, devastating and it's it's terrible but it can become idolatrous if it exceeds, and David is an example of idolatrous grief over his son. His son meant more to him than the kingdom, more to him than the war, more to him than his soldiers. You know, when uh, Joab got up into David's face, that's why I included part of uh, chapter 9 in today's sermon. When he got up in David's face and had a man-to-man in-your-face come-to-Jesus meeting with David... And there's no person living at that time who could have done that and gotten away with it 
but Joab. But Joab did it. He said, it's fairly obvious to everyone, you don't love us. You hate us. You're not encouraged by the victory. You're only consumed and concerned with Absalom, who was a traitor, who would have destroyed you in a second if he had the opportunity. And so Joab confronts with, uh, you know, it probably wouldn't pass for uh, the standard church discipline contra- confrontation, but it was a little more in his face than that. But Joab knew how to get his message across, and he got it across clearly. We will see how David fares. But I think the thing that this passage shows me more than anything else, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that pride goes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. The chapter closes with the messengers being sent to David to inform him of the outcome of the battle. And so we've seen that. We've seen the confrontation with Joab. The conclusion to the story of Absalom provides for us an amazing three-dimensional picture of the destructiveness of the sin of pride. You know, everybody else can see you're proud, but for some reason, we're just totally blind to our pride, aren't we? My mother, one time, sitting at the dinner table, called me a pompous donkey. (laughs) Only she used the other word. My mother, I never heard my mother curse, but that day she did. And I looked at her like, what are you from another planet? I'm just chill. I'm just cool. Have my act together. So I wasn't ruffled by it. I didn't show any disturbedness about it. I had my own views about what she thought at that time. But Absalom's pride was most clearly revealed in his concern about his image and his reputation. He wanted to be highly praised for his good looks. And he would weigh his hair every year that he cut it to announce and to show off his virility to the admirers. Absalom utilized a chariot and horses and 50 men to run in front of him everywhere he went. That is an entourage, is it not? And that's how the man lived. Um, Furthermore, Absalom's pride becomes a snare to him as Hushai's flattery of him blinds Absalom from Hushai's real motives. Therefore, he follows Hushai's advice and not Ahithophel's, and it was to his own destruction. Now, in his final moments, ironically, what had been a, such a source of pride for Absalom, his great locks of hair, become the source of his undoing. We could hardly ask for a better illustration of how pride ensnares us. The Bible places tremendous emphasis on the sin of pride and its antithesis, humility. The best definition I could ever give you of humility is self-forgetfulness. It's not thinking of yourself too much. It's not thinking of yourself too little. It's just forgetting yourself. But pride is obsessed with yourself. And instead of depending upon God, Pride depends upon the self due to an excessive assessment of your own capabilities. 
Many ancient Christian thinkers, Augustine, Aquinas, and Dante, place pride at the, as the deadliest sin and the preeminent of all vices. Throughout the Old Testament wisdom literature and Psalms, pride is ubiquitously condemned. Listen. Proverbs 16, 8 could be speaking directly to Absalom when it says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 5 declares the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 21, 4. Further, the story of the fall of Absalom could be a portrayal of the truths of Proverbs 18, which states, Before a downfall, the heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. In 2 Samuel 15 to 18, we see Absalom's heart becoming increasingly proud, but David over against him, humbling himself. When David departed from Jerusalem, he showed humility in covering his head and leaving the city, going barefoot, weeping. God shows favor to the humble, which can be seen how God graciously answered David's prayer to frustrate the wisdom of Ahithophel. But the New Testament as well condemns pride and underscores humility as a virtue. Jesus called himself humble in heart. While Proverbs 3.34 is quoted in James 6 and 1 Peter 5.5 saying this, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble, urging us to humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift us up in due time. Whether it is our ministry and our family relationships or personal friendship, pride is detrimental. I'll tell you something about pride. Pride loves to be right. Pride loves the ascendancy and power. Pride never admits wrong. Because if you're consumed with pride, you always have to defend yourself and uh, hold yourself above the other person. One of the reasons why we have conflicts uh, that end up being broken relationships is because we think the person we're having the conflict with is not as spiritual and that we're better than them. You say, is that right? Well, every time I've done it, it was right. We like to think we're better. We like to think that I'm not the kind of person who would ever say or do that. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. We're all in need of a Savior. We're all in need of the Lord's cleansing blood. Humility comes before honor. And nothing is more attractive to our triune God than a humble spirit and a broken and contrite heart. God does not like us preening and being pompous, as my mother told me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. Uh, What a powerful illustration of pride going before the fall. And the life of Absalom is a monument not to his glory, greatness, and vanity, but rather the destruction that pride wrought in his heart. Now, Lord, if we're holding on 
to a measure of pride where we refuse to do or say certain things because we're filled with pride. Would you bring us to a point of brokenness to see that we need Jesus as much as anybody else? Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give you praise for your mercy is everlasting and your grace is infinite. Now, Lord, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who belong to you and who do so with gratitude, not guilt, not oughtness, but gratitude. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.